Good evening. Well, it started all again. It started already. What I thought was going to happen when I got here. Good association. I get to hear a good brother preach a little lesson. I eat too much food. That's already, that's already started, uh, and I'm looking forward to more uh, good lessons and time to be together um, in every way. I have no idea why Dan said I was going to preach for an hour and a half. What I, what really perplexes me is why you laughed at that. <laughs> Because uh, he wasn't, I don't think he was joking. Were you joking? He wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, thank you for the time we can spend together. We're going to go back to the book of Philippians. Our intention in our lessons uh, this week, or my intention, is to take us to the text, uh, some of the text of the book of Philippians, examining the life of the Apostle Paul, particularly as it relates to his life and his mission, reflecting Christ in his life. Uh, so that we might imitate that, we might as well recognize what Paul has revealed to us as the type of uh, passion we need to have in our lives uh, so that to live is Christ. Uh, what do you want for your kids? Uh, what do you hope for, inspire when you have children? I've heard that expressed, I think, several times by younger folks, or maybe when they first have children or maybe when they're uh, young parents. Is, uh, they would say, well, I don't, I don't want my kids to have to struggle like I struggle, you know, I had, a, I had a rough life, and we barely got by. And if I'm going to do anything for my kids, I want to make my life, their life easier than it was for me. As I look at the Apostle Paul and the words we're going to talk about this evening, I would suggest he did not hold that perspective. Paul's perspective was not to look at his children in the faith and say, what I want more than anything else is to make life easier for you. In fact, what he told them was, Life is not going to be any easier for you than it is for me. Let's read together Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 27. We're going to talk about living worthy of the gospel. These words, I think, are familiar to you. I know many of you have read these many, many times and studied them together and heard lessons on them, and that's good that we're familiar with them. But I want us to explore them from the perspective here of uh, what is involved in living worthy or having conduct that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. In verse 27, the apostle says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. But it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now you hear that I still have. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What does it mean, worthy? What is something worth? You know, we ask that question a lot. In the everyday elements of our life, that answer may differ and does differ from person to person. One thing may be worth something more to you than it is to me. And so maybe you're willing to pay something more for something than I would be willing to pay for it. We recognize the word worthy here is a determined value. And most times when we use that particular terminology in our daily lives, we recognize that it's determined by a person who applies a certain standard to the judgment. So if you've got a used car and you're, going to, and you're asking, what is this thing worth? Well, you could ask your neighbor what he thinks it's worth. 
you could take it, open up the Kelly Blue Book, and you could look and see what consensus is that it is worth. You could take it down to the dealership and ask the guy who wants to sell you a new car what it's worth, and you may get all different answers about that. If it, a car that's been in your family for several generations as an antique, your family might tell you that it's worth a lot more. So there are different ways in which to assess value or worth. There are some things that are worth more money than anybody could give you for them. You would never sell them for anything. That you wouldn't at any price get rid of them. Paul admonishes the Philippians to conduct themselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now I would suggest to you as we first begin to look at what that means to understand that the gospel of Christ is the standard by which worth in this passage can ever be defined or should be defined. The New Testament word for worthy here uh, is the word axios, if I'm pronouncing that right, and I usually don't, which literally means of weight. It means that you put something beside something and you weigh it out because that's the way uh, uh, coins and other things uh, determine their value by their weight. But Vines describes it as in an adjective form as meaning something that is deserving or something that is suitable. It's used of individuals and their deeds. It assumes, I think, in this, in its sense, that there is a quality of a value or something that is deserved by the nature of what we are assessing. So a piece of land is worth so much. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, that a, a laborer is worthy of his wages. The verb form of axios, as it's used in the New Testament, many times describes a favorable estimation that's given by God. So God assesses things concerning our life and says this is worthy. Uh, in, Second in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul says, Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Uh, in Second Thessalonians, uh, he says in chapter 1 verse 11, Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. As I look at these passages, I come to the conclusion that the worthiness here is something that God assigns. It is an assessment that he's made, and he says, you see, that he counts us worthy, or counts Christians worthy here of the kingdom, worthy of his blessings. Now, what it does not say is that I make myself worthy. This is not a self-assessment, as these passages relate to. It's described as the value that God places upon my work of faith, upon the confidence that I place within him. And maybe even, as he says here, the suffering that I, endeavor, that, that I endure. So right up front, we recognize that we're not worthy because we've earned God's blessings in any way. And God doesn't account us worthy because we've worked it all out to be perfect before him. But God values, gives assigns a worth to our relationship to him and therefore dispenses blessings in, in, in accordance with that worthiness. But what does the word mean here in Philippians, in this passage? How can our conduct be worthy of the gospel? There's a New Testament phrase that I want to, that's similar to this that I want to connect with this to try uh, to, to make better sense of it. It helps me to understand what this passage uh, I think means in this context and how I can apply it. And maybe you heard this passage, this, this word used in this way before. The Bible talks about fruits that are worthy of repentance. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 20. It talks about there that at Jerusalem and throughout all the country of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds worthy of their repentance. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8, John the Baptist spoke about bearing fruits worthy of repentance. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 8, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And so we do lessons and maybe we study about this aspect of repentance and what repentance is and what does it mean for a person to repent. And usually in somewhere in that discussion, we talk about the deeds that John John describes here as being worthy of repentance. What does that mean here in this text? Well, again, some translations use the word suitable or use the word befitting of repentance. Now, it can't mean that Deeds are things that we do from our changed behavior, our changed mind occurs because they are because are of the idea of deserving of repentance. Because you see, the repentance has already taken place. The repentance, the change of mind has already occurred. And then the deeds that are worthy of that repentance follow the change of mind. So I'm convinced that what this, at least in my thinking on this, that what the Bible is talking about when it says we should produce deeds worthy of repentance, it means that a person values his change of mind enough that he will do the deeds that are suitable to that change of mind. That you see, what is the value of your repentance? You say, I'm sorry, I won't do that anymore. How much is that worth? Well, we have to determine that by what? By whether or not you actually change your conduct and do something different. Have you ever had someone apologize to you and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I did that. And they turn right around and do the same thing again. And you say, well, wait a minute. What, what does that mean? Does that, and we try to figure out whether or not he really repented and sometimes get us in a theological discussion that really doesn't get to the point. The really point, what is missing there are the deeds that are worthy of the repentance. And we can make an assessment about here the aspect that when he said he was sorry, it really didn't really, it wasn't really worth much to him or he would have done those things that were different. So when we ask the question, what is your repentance worth? That question is answered in the context of whether or not you actually change your behavior. Therefore, conduct worthy of the gospel is conduct that displays the value or the worth of that message in your life. You like the gospel? You value the gospel in your life? How can you know that? How could I judge whether or not you value the gospel in your life? By whether or not you do things or you live a certain way of worth that show that the gospel is valuable to you. Words, conduct that befits the gospel message. But what is the gospel? What, it's a happy story. It means good news, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's not just a joyful story about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a call to conduct. And a certain kind of conduct that befits the message itself. So if you look at the gospel story and you recognize what it means for God to reveal these things to us. We recognize that it calls us to a certain way of life. God is not just interested in us knowing what he's done. Or being, you see, uh, familiar with a message. But rather not whether or not we will be the type of person that will live a life that's worthy of that message. If the message of the gospel is a message of compassion, then I must be compassionate. If it's a message of truth, then I must tell the truth all the time and speak it to others. If it's a message of justice and impartiality and righteousness, then that bleeds into my life and I will look for times and seek out times to seek justice and to be fair and impartial towards others. If it's a message of mercy, then I must extend mercy to others. If it's a message of obedience and righteousness, then I must strive to do what is right. So Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, you see, those who 
recognize mercy will extend it to others, and God will reward that with mercy towards them. So there is a character that comes along with the message. If the gospel is a message of forgiveness, then I must forgive other people. If it is a message of love, then above all things, I must love others. Because that's conduct that's worthy of the message itself. Now, I believe that's a very powerful argument. And not one that's just as restricted to the gospel message itself. We would recognize that argument in many other different areas of life. And the idea that if you're going to take this to be true, then this means this is the way you must act. If you don't do that, then that really doesn't hold much weight in your life. It's not very heavy unless you actually act it out in your life. If you know what Jesus did for you, do you know how to act? And can I go from that, knowing what Jesus did for me, to understanding the kind of decisions I must make in my life for righteousness? Paul would answer that question absolutely and necessarily. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now look over that passage. Do you see any characteristics of the gospel message there in that passage? What about lowliness and gentleness and long suffering? The idea of bearing one another. And then there's that word love again right there in that context where he says you walk worthy of the calling. What does that mean? That means you must love. Why? Because the calling is out of love. The most you must forgive. Why? Because God called you to forgive you. You see what God did to us and what he called us with is the very things we must incorporate into our life. So long suffering and unity and peace. All of those things are not dissociated from the gospel message. They are the very calling that you and I, you see, are responsible to keep. Paul told the church at Rome to receive their sister Phoebe in a manner worthy of the saints. Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. You think they knew what that meant? When he said, treat her in a way that's worthy of the saints. He was implying that they already knew what it meant to be a saint and sanctified and that that would necessarily would give them an idea of how they ought to treat this sister. He didn't have to spell it out. He just said, there's the message. Here's the truth. Now you must act accordingly. The Apostle Paul urged Christians to treat strangers in a manner worthy of God. Whoa, that's kind of heavy, isn't it? That you treat somebody you don't even know in a manner that's worthy of of God, suitable and befitting to how God has treated me. But see, that's the underlying foundation of it, isn't it? We might struggle with that idea of how should I treat my brother or my enemy? The person doesn't like me. The person that's not like me. The person on the other end of the world is trying to destroy me, holds different religious beliefs than me. How should I treat this stranger? The gospel would say, worthy of God. You treat them worthy of God. You know how God's treated you? Then you know how to treat them. Now, as simple as that is, it is rather profound and challenging, I believe, as well. He says here that it's a manner of life. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. You have a manner of life? Yeah, you do. Whether you like it or not, you have a manner or a conduct of life. It's not a simply sporadic, one sporadic action, but it is a way of living. It is... A series of decisions and conducts that you make in your life that determine your character. The New King James uses the word conduct here. The ASV says manner of life. 
The Holman Christian Standard Bible puts the imperative sense in the passage. It says, live your life in a worthy manner. That this is a command here. Do you know the duties of being a citizen of the United States? Maybe some of us know that more than others. If you've come from another country and maybe you've gone through the process of being naturalized as a citizen of this country and you've gone through the educational process and taken the pledges that are involved in that, then you may know that even more than those of us who were born into this country. But there are certain obligations of U.S. citizenship. You see, there are five mandatory ones that I'm aware of. You obey the laws, you pay the taxes. When you're called upon, you serve on a jury and you serve as a witness or a register for the, for the draft. There are others, you see, that are not necessarily those things that are mandatory but are voluntary. But we assume that someone who's a citizen would know that they ought to do these things, to respect the freedom and the property of others, to value and uphold the Constitution, to defend democracy. This aspect of justice is a part of, well, of what we understand in our association or our citizenship in the country. The city of Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a city set up like some cities were that would reflect Rome itself and sometimes were referred to as Little Rome. So if you lived in Philippi, then you were someone who would understand that there were certain obligations to you as a citizen of that city to Rome itself. And you would want to act in certain ways so that you didn't lose that because there are privileges that were involved in all of that. So no doubt blessings involved in that. So... The idea of living in that city politically, physically, would have ramifications. What's interesting is that the, 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 the word that Paul uses here, this translated way of life or manner of life or conduct, is a word, and again, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that one, is a word that means a pledged law of life, a citizen of a government. You might notice from the spelling that our word politics comes from that word, the idea of policy. In his other epistles, Paul used another word, most times for the term, the idea of behavior and conduct, almost exclusively. Yet when he writes to the church here at Philippi, and he talks about the aspect of worthy conduct, he uses a word that means citizenship or exercising citizenship. I believe what Paul was getting across to them, he was admonishing them to exercise their spiritual citizenship in a hostile environment. He was not referencing their Roman citizenship. He was referencing their spiritual citizenship in the kingdom of God. And later on, you see, he makes that very connection. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, they were called to a commonwealth that was ruled from heaven itself, a spiritual kingdom that was different than any kingdom they could be aware they could be a part of on this earth. And therefore, that was brought to them through the message of the gospel. Therefore, there was conduct that suited or befitted this spiritual kingdom of God. A manner of life, you see, that was worthy of it. The gospel is the constitution of the Christian life. It defines not only the rules or obligations, but it extends the allegiance of the Christian in his life. It directs our passions in such a way that we do those things that reflect the love that we have for the kingdom of God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, what does Paul apply it to here as he writes the church at Philippi? What was involved in exercising their citizenship in the kingdom of God? And what does it look like 
for you and I to engage in that very same type of citizenship. Maybe the more pointed question as I would think about it in my life is what does the value of the gospel demand? Because I'm pretty well sure that I value the gospel. That I could come to that conclusion and you could too. The gospel is not just another story. It's a story about our salvation. It's what God has done. It's the revelation of the spirit of God, the very words of God. So there's value inherent in understanding where it came from and what's involved in the content of the gospel. But there's also a worth of the gospel that is manifested, exercised in my life and the decisions that I make. What does that look like? Here are the things that Paul mentions in the the text. He says that I see you standing fast in one spirit with one mind. You see, their call to citizenship by the gospel required that they face opposition And the apostle knew that. They were already facing opposition. And if they could look clearly at what was happening to the apostle that had brought the gospel to them, they could understand this was what was going to happen to them as well. And so Paul says, this is what it means. You must stand fast. Or literally take a stand. I believe those words imply a unifying code of conviction to which individuals must never waver. Because that's going to be the temptation is to waver away from what the gospel actually says, from the requirements of what it means to be a citizen in the gospel of Jesus Christ, or even from my own conviction and my own obedience. I must adhere to it. So the Christian lives a principled life. It's not one that shoots from the hips and goes whatever comes along. You know, I think there's a, there's a word that really runs against the grain of what it means to live a Christian in this life, and that's the word trending. You ever see that? Well, this is what's trending. This is, I mean, this is the direction society is going. It's what everybody's placing there. This is the really popular thing to do. This particular admonition counters that in every way. That God is not looking for me to follow trends. He's looking for me to stand solid and secure on a standard of worth that's brought the gospel message itself. Convictions that I will not back away from. A principled life, not a popular notion. So have to be careful about that because sometimes we're attracted to popular notions when we ought to be, you see, standing fast. But he says, in one spirit with one mind. It's fascinating to me how many times Paul uses the word one. It's as though he thinks unity is important, uh, as though he thinks that we ought to be united. In one spirit, what does that mean? Well, it could certainly reference the Holy Spirit through revelation. And it could be a big S here when he says one spirit. That he's talking about the spirit of God. Particularly the aspect of the revelation of God. He said elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 4 that we should walk worthy of the calling. And then he lifts several ones that characterize the gospel as essential to unity. He says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And he says you must endeavor to keep the unity of that one spirit. And so to, to you see, stand fast in one spirit means you hold to the message. You don't, you don't replace it. You don't adulterate it or change it. You hold to that one message. It could be that the spirit ought to be little less. There's a case to be made for that, that what Paul's saying here when he says we ought to stand and we ought to take a stand in one spirit, meaning that we are all together in this, in terms of the human spirit, that we share in the attitudes and the aspirations with one another. I would suggest to you that unity is is superficial 
if the Christians that are, that are attempting to make unity are not together in what they want to accomplish and what God calls them to. But considering the context, I think, probably talking about the Holy Spirit and the message, but then he says with one mind, and that's where we may get the idea here that he's talking about what you and I aspire to or what we're thinking. The mind is the seat of emotions. It's the seat of reasoning. And let me tell you something that's unbiblical here. It's totally unbiblical to suggest that we're not responsible for what we think as Christians. That somehow whatever we think just comes naturally or become, comes, comes unbidden in our lives and we can't really do anything about what we think. There's, if there's anything that Paul emphasizes in the Philippian letter, it's that we have to control our thinking and change the way that we think. Lord willing, we're going to talk about that tomorrow night, so we won't spend a lot of time on that here. But Paul talks about one mind. The new mindset, then, which with which we are to be united, comes from God alone. That ties these two things together. It is a unity of one spirit, a revelation of God, that's an allegiance, you see, to the aspect of my mind, or my mind's an allegiance to that one, uh, that one spirit. What does he say in verse 27? He says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I like one translation that says shoulder to shoulder. Get the image. Here's a Christian. There's another Christian standing beside him. But there's another Christian. So we are shoulder to shoulder. It gives the image here of the aspect of a defensive position or a position that will not be easily moved away. But then he, And then he uses a verb that means exactly that, to strive or to endeavor for the faith. And I'm convinced that the faith here is objective in its nature, the revealed word of God, that which God has presented to us in the gospel itself, so that we walk worthy of the gospel when we stand shoulder to shoulder and we contend for the faith. We do not compromise what God has provided for us. So the word combines the activity of striving with the quality of togetherness. Those two things do kind of meld together, don't they? The idea that you would engage seriously and earnestly, passionately in something, and that you would join others in that very same endeavor. So we must fight side by side. There's sometimes in which that, that really is an encouragement. Having somebody with you really is sort of an encouraging notion. And it almost, it's almost unbidden. Have you ever attended a, a baseball game or a football game in somebody else's stadium? <laughs> uh, sometimes that's not, that, that's not a very good experience. You know, you go there to cheer for your team and then you're surrounded by the enemy. <laughs> and they got all these jerseys on, you know, that are, that are white and blue and red. think, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> but then there you are. There you are with your dolphin shirt on. And you think, what am I doing here? But then, so you start, they score a touchdown and say, ooh, that's good, that's good. And you look around. But then when you look around, you see another guy who wants to see over there. And he's got a Dolphin jersey on, and he does this too. So then they score another touchdown, you see four or five more guys in your very section that have all have Dolphin jerseys on. And now you're all standing up together, and you're, yeah! How'd you get that kind of courage? Because you were side by side. Striving for the same passion. And that's what happens in the life of Christians, particularly young people, right? Am I the only one that believes you should have to wait till you're married? Is I'm the only one that thinks you shouldn't talk like that? Or you shouldn't go those places? 
And then you get them in a situation where they meet somebody else the same age, going through the same struggles, and you realize they're standing for those very same things. And that's the image you see that God gives us as a body of Christ. That we stand shoulder to shoulder and we exercise a life that's worthy of the gospel. We're united by this message that God has provided for us. And so we stand side by side striving for the faith that's been delivered. And we have the courage that God provides for us. And courage is what comes up in verse 28. He says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. And although Christians are struggling and fighting in a hostile territory, we are encouraged not to be afraid. Let me say that again. Christians do not need to be afraid. They do not need to be afraid. Our commander in chief is in charge of everything and in control of everything. And if we have a passionate desire to serve him, we do not have to serve in any way in our life in fear. Now, how does Paul express that here? I think in a very insightful way. In his explanation in verse 28 is he says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What does it mean for other people to see you standing up for the truth? Not giving in, enduring to the end. They might laugh and scoff at it at first. But after it continues on and on and on and you see the group of individuals who are standing for the faith in a very hostile territory, it begins to dawn on them maybe there's something to this. Maybe there is a God who's going to judge all men. And as it continued on in the first century and those who were very opposed to the gospel message saw Christians who were willing to give their life for this message, it said one thing. And that is that if they don't accept this message, they will be destroyed. It was a clear sign of their own destruction. But Paul said, but it's a sign of your salvation that you were able to live this way. And he says, and that from God. So we can endure a lot of pressure if we understand the meaning of the situation. And if we know how things are going to turn out in the end, we live in a bad place. But folks, this is not our home. We're traveling on. Righteousness will prevail in the end. So Paul says in Romans chapter 8 in those very familiar passages, What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so Paul says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And then lastly, he says in verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, of everything we've mentioned so far, this is the thing that I think most grabs me about what it meant to say to live as Christ and how Paul understood it. Do we understand that the word grant there? Literally means in the language to bestow as a gift. If I grant you something, I just give it to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't in any way come about where it was obligated. Someone was obligated to give it to you. He granted it to them. It was a gift. Now, can you think about all the gifts that God's given you in your life? There's several, you know, if you sit down and count your blessings. He's given you salvation. The physical blessings that we could go on and all uh, on about, and we think about this, all, all the things that God has provided for us. Where on that list did we put suffering? God granted to you the opportunity to suffer. He gave it to you as a gift. Well, wait a minute, God. Uh, some of your gifts, okay, but please, not that one. 
Isn't that most of what we would think about suffering? God, why have you do? Well, I didn't want this. And yet, you see, Paul says to the Philippian brethren, God has given you a gift here. And the gift is the opportunity to suffer as a Christian. Does that ever happen? God's people count suffering as a gift? You know, I think about Acts chapter 5 and the apostles being arrested. Eventually, at the end of chapter 5, you see... They can't seem to know what to do with the apostles. And so they say, okay, you guys get out of here and don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And then, well, let's just read. we, we, we got a couple minutes, right? i got an hour more. So uh, uh, let's read Acts chapter 5. Because I want us to see the language here. End of that chapter. It says that they charged them in verse 40 not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. There was a worth to what they just done. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. You know what they were doing? Walking worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is a story of suffering. The gospel is a story of God's suffering in our behalf. And to walk worthy of that particular message is to be willing to suffer ourselves. So I'm, think, I'm absolutely convinced here as we, as we talk about this aspect of what it means to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we have to include what Paul includes here at the last. That it means to be willing to suffer. Now, how does this relate to your life and the life of Christians in general? As I close, one thing comes to my mind. And that is, we need to start acting like winners and not losers in our life. We start acting like winners and not losers. Because we're not losers. To take a mindset... That somehow this world is too mean and it's too bad and it's too dark and can't ever get all through this and it's never going to turn out any way that we really want it to turn out is to place way too much emphasis on what we're seeing here rather than what God has told us about what's coming. So we don't need to be afraid of our enemies and we need to walk in a way that's worthy of the gospel message itself by counting the suffering that we're engaged in right now as a privilege to bring honor and glory to God. Living as those who are, king, who are citizens in the kingdom of God and not the citizens in the kingdom of this world, we need to live as victors. And in that way, by being willing to not abandon our relationship to God and our commitment to God, we will honor not ourselves, but we will honor our Lord. And we will honor the gospel message itself. We need to walk worthy of the change that the gospel demands. You realize that's what the gospel does, right? Demands that you change your life. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Unless you repent, you will perish. You must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. Throughout the preaching of the gospel of the book of Acts, there is this continual refrain that individuals must change their life, and that's what God was calling them to do. Now you're a Christian. Walk worthy of that change. That change of mind. What you've been called to. Should we continue in sin because grace is apparent? God forbid. 
We have died to that sin. How can we any longer live in it? We have been, we have died to sin and we have been buried with Him. Now we rise to walk in the newness of life. Have you done that? Rise to walk in newness of life? Died to sin? Think seriously about those things even as we continue our study tonight. Maybe there's some way we can help you. The members of this congregation as well can help you to better understand what God requires of you in your life. That you might walk worthy of the gospel message of Jesus. Thank you for your attention.